Well, happy Palm Sunday to everybody. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Title of today's message is called Getting Lost in the Parade. And we're going to be in John chapter 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or flip over your bulletin or turn on your phone or whatever electronic device you might use to read God's Word. How many people have seen the World War II movie with uh, actor George C. Scott called Patton? Anybody ever seen that? One of my favorite movies. The movie is a biographical story of the last few years of the World War II in the European theater, and it tells the story of General George S. Patton. If you don't know who that is, General Patton was a commander of the 7th Army and then later the 3rd Army in Europe, and he's credited for taking more land, more prisoners, faster than anybody in warfare had ever taken before. He was one of the greatest field commanders in history. Patton was also a great lover of history. Even though he claimed to be a Christian who read the Bible every day, he also believed that he was the reincarnation of several great military leaders that had existed in the centuries before. And even all with his leadership brilliance and tactical genius that he had, he was also kind of a glory hound. He always insisted on having his boots shine to this mere finish. He would have his, his aides and his, the servants that, that were under him just shine his boots, press his uniforms, make sure that his chiefs had several flags on them and saying who he was the, with the stars on the flag saying he was a three-star general. He even had a klaxon on the front of his jeep that whenever he approached a formation of troops, it would sound just like a big cue siren on a fire engine just announcing General Patton is coming. Patton was also a great lover of parades, especially if he got to be in them. The one exception to this is when he landed in Sicily. The Allied armies had um, come over in boat from North Africa and had landed on the southern part of the island. Sicily is shaped kind of like a triangle, and so Patton had... Um, landed toward the southwest part of the island, and his primary rival on the Allied side, British General Montgomery, was on the east side. Patton was supposed to take a really long route and conquer Palermo on the north-central side, or kind of northeast or west, yeah, northwest side of Sicily. Montgomery got to go right up the coast and try to take Messina, which was the closest port to the mainland of Italy. Patton took Palermo in a manner of days while General Montgomery got bogged down, meeting very heavy resistance when he found out the terrain wasn't as favorable to a rapid advance as the planners had thought. Patton proposed that since I have already taken Palermo, why don't I just swing east and take Messina too? Because Messina was the key to the island. Well, General Alexander, who was the supreme commander over that operation, who was also British, just like General Montgomery, didn't want to embarrass his his fellow British general and having Patton take the whole island. So he told him, Patton, just stand down, hold on to Palermo, and Montgomery will get there eventually. Well, Patton claimed that a radio communication had failed and it became garbled and he never got that order and raced east and took Messina anyway. So when General Montgomery came marching into town a few days later, there's Patton standing there with a big grin on his face, surrounded by his 7th Army. Parades are something that brings out a sense of pride in us, isn't it? Most of us here like going to the parades that are in our community. We like seeing the cars, we like seeing the bands, we like seeing the emergency vehicles, farm equipment, politicians, occasionally. 
well, we like seeing those people in the parades. We recognize neighbors, we come together and we experience this as part of living in a rural community. And our love of parades is not just a new development in our culture. Just like General Patton and Montgomery, people would often line the streets in ancient times when a conquering hero would come home or some local king or ruler would come through and all the pomp and circumstance that they would bring, people would line the streets to see this come in. And today, even a sports hero gets a parade, don't they? It used to be in Green Bay that when the Packers arrived by airport, especially after a win, that Green Bay Police and Fire Department would give them a police escort all the way back to their hotel or all the way back to Lambeau Field from the airport. And people would line the streets to cheer them on and see the bus uh, fly by. 2,000 years ago, there was a parade that happened right at the beginning of Holy Week in Jerusalem. And unlike most parades, it was a very spontaneous event. There's a great deal of excitement in the air as everybody was talking about this Messiah that was now coming into Jerusalem. They had great expectations that this Messiah was going to make Israel great again. In addition, this was during the annual Passover pilgrimage, when a city that normally had about 80,000 people living in it swelled into the millions of people. Jews from hundreds if not thousands of miles away would pilgrimage into this city ready to celebrate Passover, which is one of their most sacred festivals. So this is a background that leads up to the events that we're going to read about this morning. So we're going to read from John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things that had been written about him and all these things that had been done to him. And Father God, as we read your word this morning, as we study it and talk about it, I ask, Father, that you just give us a new appreciation for the lessons that we're going to draw out of it today, particularly when it comes to following a crowd, Father. Lord God, I ask, Father, for your wisdom, your anointing to bring forth the message, and I ask, Father, that everybody here has an ear to hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So this was the parade to beat all parades. Jesus coming into Jerusalem and hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets and cheering his name, throwing down palm branches in front of him, putting down their cloaks, stripping off their coats, putting them down in front of him and cheering him in to coming into Jerusalem. In our context, the only thing that comes close would be like a ticker tape parade in New York City. You ever seen those? The cars go by carrying the heroes and stuff flies out of the windows and where do they get all that stuff anyway? You ever wonder that? Where do they get all that confetti they throw on everybody? That's like the closest thing that we know about that. Jesus coming in Jerusalem shows us a few things about the crowd that can help us today live a little bit more wisely. 
Most of us today in the culture we live in have difficulty deciding and figuring out what is actually true in our world, don't we? And what is just made up? What is fake news? We, we are unique in history is that we have the most information available to us and yet we are the most misinformed and often deceived culture that has ever existed in history. Most of us carry a device where we can access every bit of human information that has ever existed. And we use it to watch funny cat videos. We have every bit of information available, and yet the accuracy of this information is constantly in question. So we have the same temptation that the people in Israel did. The people in Jerusalem, we have the same tendency that they do, is that we get caught up in the excitement of the crowd sometimes, don't we? We get hooked on opinion polls. And I have, to, I have to admit that I was guilty of this leading up to the last election. I was on Real Clear Politics website several times a week, if not several times a day, just kind of looking and seeing which way public opinion was swaying toward which person was going to be elected. And I was, you know, watching it and, and really tracking it. If you don't know what Real Clear Politics is, it's a website that takes all the polls, puts them together, and tells you what the averages are. And I was looking at them and kind of sweating about it and going, gosh, is my, is it my person going to get in or is, is the other person going to get in in, in each one of these races? And it kind of turned out that all the polls were dead wrong. And we as God's people, we need to be more spiritually minded than that. Our source and <clears throat> excuse me, our source of truth and information should be the Word of God. We need to understand the danger of following the crowds at, being, at the expense of being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and His truth, especially in these last days when we're um, rapidly approaching the end of time. So let's dig into this, this event in history and see what we can learn from it. The first thing we learn about the crowd is this. People's immediate life situations influence how they view God. I don't know if you realize that, but pretty much a person's background will influence how they view the Bible and how they view God. If you were to open up your hymnals in front of you and page through it and look at some of the, there's probably a couple of them in there, some of the notes or subtitles under the song name, you would see several of them that would say, an old Negro spiritual. You ever seen that in a hymnal? Songs like, I got peace like a river, old Negro spiritual. Kumbaya is an old Negro spiritual. Pass me not, old time religion. Or that Whitehall favorite, we sing it every single Sunday, don't we? No more auction block for me. Maybe not. That designation of old Negro spiritual indicates that the song was a song that was composed by slaves as they worked in the fields in the late 17 and 1800s. These songs were created while they worked and sweated and toiled in fields and homes and clearing woods and all kinds of things that the African slaves had to do in the hot sun, particularly in the southern states. And they sang to keep their minds off this suffering. They sang to keep their minds off their captive state. And they prayed and worshipped to God to set them free, even in the midst of their situation. 
And for many of the people who are the descendant of these slaves, their whole view of God, their whole view of redemption, heaven, hell, sin, and suffering are all wrapped up inside their ancestors' history of slaves. This is particularly true in poor inner-city neighborhoods. They will take a look at the Bible and they'll see this only through the lens of their personal situations. And the people in Jesus' day were no different. These were people that were suffering under a very brutal Roman rule and government. And in fact, a Roman citizen or a Roman soldier could force you to carry whatever they wanted for at least one mile. In other words, they could stop you right here at Dollar General and have you carried all the way to Whitehall Specialties, 100 pounds if they wanted to. They could force you to do that. They could walk into your home, just pound, kick the door in and say, my home, I'm staying here tonight, get out. This is, the kind of, this is what they lived under. Corruption was so widespread, it wasn't unheard of a Roman soldier just to walk past somebody, you know, a Jewish person on the road, see their money belt hanging there, and just grab it right off of them and said, I don't like the way you look at me, you're paying a tax for that, and I'm collecting it right now. These are the kind of situations that they lived under. Even the quasi-Jewish governors were just as corrupt and cruel, and they ruled them with an iron fist. Herod's order to massacre dozens of male children in Bethlehem was a prime example of the type of tyranny that they lived under. Is it any wonder why these people were crying out to God for a Messiah? Is it any wonder why they were calling for David's throne to be reestablished? Is it any wonder why they created, or excuse me, greeted Jesus as a conquering hero instead of recognizing him for the suffering Savior he was coming to be? You see, they viewed all that Old Testament prophetic scripture through the lens of the situation that they were in at that time. And not according to the intent of the prophecy that was given in Zechariah, even though the evidence was right there in front of them. And that leads us to the second way of understanding the danger of following a crowd. And that is crowds are never interested in the details only the emotion. The, sec the quotation found in the section of Scripture he read today comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. So let's read what the prophet actually wrote about 450 years before Jesus wrote in Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Israel. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and all the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bowl will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now this was written, as I said, about 450 years before Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. And during that time, the area in and around Israel had been conquered several times, from Zechariah's time till right then. And in 32 AD, when Jesus took his ride, as we said, it was the Romans ruling over them. And with any conquered people, with any conquered people, this has to do with us or any other nation, the custom of the conquerors become enlarge your customs, because you're living under their government now. And one of the most familiar to anyone under Roman rule was the custom of a conquering king, general, ruler, governor, whatever. If they were riding into town, 
in a huge parade, you could always spot the person of honor because they were riding a white horse. A big, beautiful white horse. That always told you who the person of honor was in that parade. Donkeys, on the other hand, were reserved for servants, slaves, and the very poor. Let me put this into perspective for us. For the last several decades, the President of the United States has ridden around in a heavily armored Cadillac limousine. Cadillac limousine. Finest of, some, one of the finest of the luxury cars. And we say, why? why? Why does he deserve that? Because he's our president. And like him or her or not, the American president deserves the best because we want our country represented in such a way that we show that our leader rides in style. The president does not run around in a 1997 Toyota Prius. Right? But Jesus chose the Prius. Why would he do that? I mean, he's a king, creation, master of the universe. Surely he deserves the finest horse, the finest ride in all existence. In fact, he could just snap his fingers, create the biggest horse, most beautiful horse imaginable, right there in front of him, speak it into existence, and ride it in Jerusalem. Why didn't Jesus do that? Because Jesus' mode of travel indicated his mission. He was a servant riding into Jerusalem to do his Father's will. And not only to serve his Father, Jesus came to serve us. To suffer the penalty our sins deserve, and to die in our place that whosoever would believe in him and follow him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The fact that Jesus was on a donkey and what that represented was completely lost to that crowd. Completely lost to them. But before we are too hard on them, we need to look at how we view the world. We too need to be wise and look at the details of things. And I know some of our church family isn't online very often. Most of you probably don't sit there on Facebook all day. But much of what is being called news, even on the broadcast networks now, and posted as fact in social media and online, is anything but news, or even factual, or truthful. If you're active in social media, you need to be very careful about what you read, what you believe, and even more importantly, what you post on your social media feed as facts or what you share even verbally with one another. This is one of the things I have to admit. It's a pet peeve of mine. It drives me insane in our digital age. And that is the forwarding and promotion of just outright lies about situation people, especially people in power and politicians and that. I remind you that it's not just your reputation at stake. If you are a Christian here, you represent the kingdom of God. You represent Jesus himself. And when a Christian just willy-nilly pulls stuff that is a lie, you say something about the Savior you claim to worship and live for. In fact, I had to unfollow a lot of people during, during this last election because they were just kept posting out-and-out lies, and a lot of them were famous pastors. And I would confront them on that, and that should not just that should not be. As pastors and as Christians, it doesn't even matter the pastor title. As Christians, we should be purveyors of truth and not suffering we know is a lie. I mean, doesn't Colossians say, be wise toward the way you act with toward outsiders? 
Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That's how we are supposed to live. The third way we can understand the danger of following a crowd is that crowds are very fickle, aren't they? Isn't the crowd's reaction to Jesus amazing? I mean, they're singing his praise. Hosanna, King, come save us. Come, Jesus. We worship you. We'll even throw our clothes down in front of you so you have a smooth way for your donkey to walk on. We worship you. Palm branches, singing, praises, people dancing. It's an incredible celebration. Five days later, crucify him. Crucify him. Give us a murder instead, and then let that sin be upon our heads. Fickle aren't they? The crowd is fickle, and deciding what is popular, or more importantly, what is right in God's eyes, based on an opinion poll, is no way for a Christian to live. There is an interesting but little-known fact about our nation's founders. Do you know what they feared and what they loathed even more than the monarchy, even more than King George, or a king ruling over them? You know what they feared? Democracy. You say, wait a minute, isn't America a democracy? No, we're not. We're not founded that way. We were formed to be a constitutional republic. The idea was that this document, the Constitution, was to protect our individual liberty, to limit government interference in our lives, and to restrain evil pe people from taking dictatorial power, and to have representatives, fine and upstanding men and women, in those offices who would always put America first and do what is right by the people and not their own special interests. That's how we were founded. I know we may have drifted from that a little bit, but that's how we founded. See, our founders feared the crowds because they were students both of Bible and of human history, and they knew that a crowd can be swayed by a smooth-talking trickster and to, do, to leading people to do things they never would have considered doing. And he said, that, that can't happen today. That, that, that can't happen anymore. Well, Hitler's Germany proved you wrong. Pol Pot's Cambodia, Mao's China, or Lenin's Russia. Those are just the last hundred years. Well, that can't happen in the church. Well, what about Jim Jones' people temple? With that mass murder-suicide that followed with that. There's tricksters out there. And that's why the truth and not following that crowd is so important. And that's what our founders feared. The crowd. The mob. Because he knew they could be swayed one way or the other. Beware of worrying about being popular with the crowd because the same crowd that sings your praises one week but could be screaming for your death the next. And anyone who's paying just a little attention to our world today can see that. Jesus didn't put his faith in the crowds either. He loved them, he served them, he died for them. But as we said last week, he did not put his faith in them. His faith was in God and his plan. And that is why we hold up as our objective fool of, of faith and conduct the Bible, not popular opinion. In closing, I just want us to remember, be very careful not to allow your situation determine who God is. Always appreciate the, de the details of a situation and stand for the truth over what is popular, and beware of the crowd's opinion, even if you are the only person standing alone 
in a situation. These three necessities enable us to live our lives in such a way that God can use us to further the name of Jesus Christ and further the gospel of the kingdom in this lost and dying world. And finally, I want to leave you this morning with this encouragement. Someday, we talked about Jesus riding in as a donkey, on a donkey, being the suffering servant, but that's not how the story ends. Jesus gets his white horse. Revelation 19, it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name that he is called is the Word of God. Jesus is coming back. Jesus isn't coming back as a suffering servant. He's not going to endure a lash again. He's not going to take the blows. His hands will never know a nail's bite again. His feet will not be pinned to a wooden cross. This time when he comes back, he's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And you would be wise this morning to make peace with this king. And the only way you make peace with this king is unconditional surrender to him right now. And I encourage you that if you haven't already, to give your life over to him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you just sweep this place right now, that you touch every heart, every mind, and every spirit in this room. That you would point out in our own lives the sin that so easily entangles us, Lord. Not because you wish to condemn us, but because you wish to confront us about it. Not because you want to send us to hell. Your word says it, that you don't, you don't want anyone to perish, but you want all to come to faith in Jesus. And Lord God, I ask, Father, as you confront each one of us about our individual sin, that you will give us the power and strength and will to repent and turn from that sin. To live for you and you alone, Lord. To finally surrender all to Jesus. To unconditionally surrender before our King. And say, take me, Lord. Forgive me for my sin. Wash me. Help me to turn from it. I give my life to you this morning.